0: Hi everyone, Boney here. Just before we get this first episode of Boundary of Disaster going, little note to say we're still working out the bugs in the system, so some of the audio quality in this one is a little bit sketchy. But please be with us. Our guest is incredible, and I won't hold you back any further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Boundary of Disaster. Our newest episode in this Motor Racing podcast series with me is, as always, is Matt Willis. How are you, sir? Hello. And Adam Berry. How are
1: you, sir? Very well. Hello. Our plan for the podcast is to discuss the very latest news in the racing world and welcome some incredible guests to chat about their careers and our sport in general. We are not going to be debating how on earth Alpine went from having two stellar drivers for one seat and lost both in 24 hours, though we probably will, because we have our next guest with us and we're seriously excited.
2: Our guest this time is one of the most trailblazing and redefining people to hit the too often stale world of motorsport journalism in many years. From championing Formula E and environmentally friendly technologies to refreshing openness on subjects like mental health and politics in motorsport, it's great we get to talk to her today. Welcome, Hazel Southwell.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me. And also, that's an incredibly flattering intro. <laughs> it's
0: not flattering enough. We need to send him away to get him to rewrite it, I think. So how the devil are you? How have you been?
3: I'm good. I'm going through a bit of spot flux at the moment. But, well, we're all quite warm in, I think we're all in Britain, are we?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's,
3: it's all pretty warm at the moment. It's been pretty warm for a while. It's going to get warmer. Um, so, yeah. On the one hand, low heating bills. On the other hand, I guess yep. that's, that's <laughs> the status quo.
1: Make the most of a heating bill situation whilst you can.
3: Also, it's, it's a rare non-race weekend. So, like, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> so that's the other part.
2: <laughs> Come on podcasts, I think, is the answer to that one. So, I mean, Hazel, do you want to just sort of tell us a bit about yourself to start with and and how you got into motorsport journalism and, and you know, why Formula E was something you decided to, to focus on particularly at the time?
3: Yeah, for sure. So I was a motorsport fan since I was a little child, um, since I was so young watching on a CRT television that I thought it, and Senna was a woman because he had long hair and Senna is a girl's name in some places. And like, that was too little to really understand. Uh, so I was an early Senna fan and then stayed very much part of that. But I sort of like wandered into my parents' kitchen at some point when I was a child and was like, I'm going to be the first female Formula One driver completely unaware there had been previous female Formula 1 drivers because like, this was pre-internet so it wasn't exactly easy to look up and it was pre-computers to be honest Like, so it wasn't like we had in car or whatever and uh, in car <laughs> there's going to be like some teenagers listening to this <laughs> going like, what's that grandma? Um, Hazel, hey, so um, one, but... one of
0: one of us here is a baby he's from the, ni- oh, no. he's from the 90s yeah it's terrible
3: gosh um uh, well anyway there was an encyclopedia (laughs) that was on a disc anyway and it had a quiz that was very exciting for all of us yeah i sort of wandered in and was like i want to be a formula one driver and my parents if they had even had the slightest idea of how they would have got me to be a formula one driver which they definitely did not they had no connection to my sport they i don't think they would have known what karting was they would not have known where to start, even if they turned around and gone, yes. And they certainly didn't have the money. But they were both just like, hmm, but you are an environmentalist. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And they were like, and you know, screaming V12s, which it was at the time, like it's a different time. They were like, come on, can you really reconcile that? And I was like, God damn, you really got me with this one. Like, can't can't think of a way around it. And I did a few bits in motorsport when I was a teenager. I did some uh, modelling because I did a lot of ballet, and I don't know, I could wear a leotard. And there's plenty of jobs for people wearing a leotard in motorsport still, and certainly were at this time. But it was never really something that I thought I could find a way into or pursue a career in and then when Formula E came along I was like you know what this is actually mm-hmm. the answer to like when my parents turned around to me like if if I was now six years old in the kitchen I'd be like no I'm going to be a Formula E driver it was it was underdoggy it was a bit because I'd worked for Pop Justice and I've worked for lots of kind of like slightly more underground publications. I'd always been a fan of underdogs and, and kind of things that were challenging the status quo. And so I got into Formula E. At the time, I was still working as uh, at the BBC as a senior digital and social producer doing loads of stuff. And then I like progressed through a series of jobs that I can't talk about because of NDAs uh, until I stopped working in in a Formula One job, actually, and went to Punta del Este in pretty much what Jeb did. (laughs) Uh, And after that, it was like all Formula E all the time. I say that it was also all Formula One all the time and, and stuff, but I kind of like threw myself into it from that point.
0: Once you got into it, what was that first impression like? Was it everything that you'd hoped for?
3: (laughs) I don't know what I could have hoped for from it, because I knew, and I think that a lot of us know, that it's a completely closed world, that it's very difficult to get into, that it's this, you know, the paddock is a closed world. It's literally a closed world. There's a gate. So if you're allowed in, you can either take the attitude that you've been humbly allowed into this special world um, or you can, as I always have because I'm just incapable of not doing this (laughs) sort of kick the door down and and be like well, what's wrong with this? (laughs) Which isn't the best career advice on some levels on other levels I think people should be less humble but there's probably a better balance between the two and I didn't necessarily find it but also when you are a woman and you're LGBT and like whatever and from like a a non-Western European background and like all kinds of things um, there's factors that mean that even if you act ever so humble you're never going to get anywhere so it would be better to at least take a kick at the glass ceiling and see if you put uh, stuff a crack in it and if the next person goes through easier or something. It's a closed world. It's a very exclusive world. It's a world that makes you very aware that it's closed and exclusive. It's a world most normal people would not feel included in. It's also a big family and there's lots and lots of people who I've made incredible friends with in motorsport who I wouldn't have known otherwise, who I wouldn't have interacted with otherwise, who I would have nothing in common with otherwise. And once you're in and you're friends with people, there's... I don't want to say it's not prejudice because there's definitely lots and lots of problems, but there's lots of people who are good people there, but also... Yeah, you're you're aware you've been allowed into the gates of something that some people feel they have more instant right to. Why do you think that is? It's because it's been curated, and especially during, for instance, the Bernie era of Formula One, it was curated to be a bunch of people that was so nepotistic and so exclusive that it was sort of quite unreal. And i like, people hate people saying this, but it's true. You know, there were lots of people who were unfairly banned from the paddock and lots of people who should have been banned from the paddock well, weren't. And there's this historical protection of a particular group and a a particular sort of aesthetic around the paddock that particularly in Formula One but I mean it does also seep into other motorsport certainly seeped a little bit into Formula E in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect because when sponsors come into a paddock they expect a paddock as they know it and the paddock as they know it tends to be Formula One and they expect to be impressed in a particular way and that involves things like Having lots of very beautiful young women who are the VIP hosts and and are certainly skilled PRs and are, are you know doing all kinds of jobs, but where you do question why none of them are beautiful young men, for instance.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know I worked for a couple of years in motorsport journalism back in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands, and um, you know never very very total. Yeah, bottom of the wrong bottom rung of the ladder never made it into an f1 paddock but thinking back it, it's very clear that that the sport looked a certain way and kind of everything about the sport looked a certain way and there was I kind of shudder to think how things were at the time really just in terms of the the makeup of it all and the attitudes um, and it feels like in some ways 20 years on things have moved a hell of a long way like the idea of, of drivers the idea of drivers back then do it talking the way acting the way lewis and seb do now and the kind of stuff that that they feel free to talk about
3: if you even think as recently as if someone googles the 2011 formula one intro from itv is this horrible like it honestly looks like and absolutely zero shame to people who do stripping and sex work like solidarity with them and they should be supported to have sufficient workers rights or or beyond sufficient workers rights but it looks like a Spearmint Rhino advert that probably shouldn't be a sport (laughs) like or or well pole dancing is a sport but like it really it looks so unpleasantly sleazy it's got all these casino vibes beautiful women draping themselves around things at no point do you see a car
2: <laughs> I, don't remember well, that. I can't remember that that either, really but... ridiculous but doesn't actually surprise me in the slightest um, but, you know it was like I remember the, the autosport show back in I think it was 99 and just the main autosport stand and, and just basically grid girls there and you know this is a trade show and but anyway there it is. I'm going sh- um, to show my age. So, the the so last time I was in a F1 paddock
0: was 1993. And I think my mum and Claire Williams were the only two women I saw the whole time we were at Donington with, with Williams. Mm, it was, mm. Oh, and, and, and the people serving the drinks. Mind you, ladies and gentlemen, when I say serving the drinks, I mean in the little pop-up tent that you now put in your garden that was the hospitality mm. right. Williams in 1993. They, they had literal like plastic lawn chairs. It was it's hilarious. <laughs> um, I got to dig some pictures out. But yeah that, was, yeah, that was it.
2: The worst thing is that it didn't seem weird at the time or not, you know, to me, it, it didn't particularly seem weird. No, I think there were one or two things that, you know, at the time even it was like, mm, this is not cool. But, you know, it's it sort of... I think, that,
3: I think that is one of the things. I mean, like I've been one of those girls in Leotard's. Like Mm. you know (laughs) well no I mean it it, it sort of so one of the things is that there's not many people that write about them who's been one of them and Mm. like and I was never an F1 but like local motorsport and to be one of the people who writes about good girls who has been one admittedly a terrible one I fell over a front wing once you can sort of see a very different side of what you were expected to do. And unfortunately, it's not a flattering side to the sport. People can say it was just for, you know, beautiful entertainment or whatever. It's like, if you're not excited enough by cars going motor racing, maybe it's not for you. <laughs>
2: mm you know fascinating stuff to be honest and it's i don't know if we should like move on to our questions
3: i know i know you want to ask me about saudi which is an interesting question in this context Mm -hmm. because obviously in saudi you can't have grid girls per se or not in the same way the sleazy show of motorsport can't show up to saudi um because of the local laws now, there's lots of things that are sleazy about showing up to Saudi, taking the government money. Um, there's all kinds of aspects of turning up to Saudi that, that certainly have all kinds of uh, sleazy vibes, but which aren't tolerable in the broader motorsport thing. So something that I found very interesting uh, when I went to Saudi Arabia for Formula E, and I had no idea what to expect, like literally no idea what to expect. I I thought I knew about Saudi Arabia because I'd been working for humanitarian organizations. I'd worked in some contexts that were sort of contra Saudi Arabia. And I, I had a big idea of Saudi Arabia, I think as most people do as Riyadh in particular is just referred to as like a government place. And as a foil for the Saudi Arabian government. So you hear about Riyadh has entered the negotiations with whatever or whatever it is. You don't really hear about it as a city of nine million people. You don't really hear about it as a place. You don't hear about like, oh, there's, you know, something happening in Riyadh because nothing happens in Riyadh. Now you do hear about stuff happening in Riyadh because you hear about the golf tours, the, the horses, the tennis, the whatever. Um, But prior to Formulary, nothing happened in Riyadh. Because nothing happened in Saudi at all. Um, And... I was really interested. um, The guy who... The promoter of the uh, Saudi race, who grew up in Saudi Arabia, then moved to the West, and then went back to organise the race, said his mum was and his mum is, you know, relatively elderly, he's he's older than me, so I guess his mum is in his, her 70s or so, that she cried the whole way through a Black Eyed Peas concert. And he was like, I don't think she knows who the Black Eyed Peas are, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, but because it was like this fall of the Berlin Wall moment where it was like, we are allowed a concert where allowed people to mingle, we're allowed people to go and do things and like I think the thing that has to be understood about the events in Saudi for the people in Saudi is that they are coming out of a four decade long lockdown. Where you were not allowed to meet with people, you were not allowed to meet with mixed sex people, you were not allowed to meet inside your house, you were not like there were so many restrictions. And the social difference that the sporting events make is massive, and especially because Formula E had these mixed stands where you could go and you and all your male and female friends could hang out, and the marshals, like because I I made friends with a bunch of the Saudi marshals and we went to the concerts together because I was like, well, of course I'm going to go to the first concerts because like this is a historical event, and ended up in a mosh pit to a Lebanese rapper doing a cover of Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams and I'm like, I remember this coming out and being, you know, in the charts for seventeen years. Um yeah, it was it was such a big thing. And you you kind of have to see it from both sides. And I think because I I kind of can see it from both sides, um, because I remember the other side of the Berlin Wall. Or well, I remember everyone uh, as far east as i was from the berlin Wall, being like oh they're making such a fuss <laughs> um, as it came down but the yeah the collapse of of totalitarianism and the, the this opening and the first concerts in moscow and and i think although yeah the the acts that came to Moscow and and to St. Petersburg and to to the various places that that hosted uh, concerts in the Soviet Union got a lot of flack, and and probably rightly so, but it was the start of a a totally different era and I'm not saying that everything's fixed, but the difference between Saudi when I went in uh, late 2018 and Saudi when I went this year, in early 2022, is, like, in late 2018, I, like, wandered around for a bit, and I was walking quite a long way, and I didn't see anyone on the street. At all. No one. And, okay, it was hot during the day, and it was... But, like, people wander around at night as a consequence, and, like, no one. Just nothing. And... I was like, wow, we must be somewhere really not central at all. We must be somewhere really strange. Even though I could see on a map and I was like, maybe I just don't understand the city. And then in 2019, uh, 2021, because we didn't go in 2020, and then the difference was so huge. There were suddenly loads of people milling around in the streets. There were loads of people in coffee shops. There were all these smoke houses. They've really adopted barbecue smoke house as a concept. There's all these hipster restaurants. There's all these like foodie markets that you go to late at night. And like, there's no booze, but you get absolutely screwed on pudding, which is a like cross Middle East thing. You just eat back there until you go insane. And like the, the difference between this empty city uh, where everyone scurried away as fast as they possibly could into shelter. Because, like lock And lockdown is the only thing I can compare it to because I think that's something people can understand and that was how Saudis had lived for a long time, which was why when I went originally, I was horrified to be told by a prince, so by the... Um, one of the sporting ministers, who's, who's now is the board minister for sport and Prince just means like you're someone significant in government, that the average life expectancy for Saudis was so low that the average age was like 31, which in a population of 39 million people, if you think about what that means and he was like they have a very poor quality of life they have very little to look forward to because they're living in lockdown and like you think about how people deteriorated over you know 6 months of lockdown imagine that forever for a, mm. you know 4 years is a lifetime
2: and it's it's amazing to think of of motorsport as you know you, you, people say all fond of saying at the moment you know keep politics out of motorsport and don't make po- motorsport political as if it's not already massively political and yet it was you know really I uh, reading your pieces about uh, about saudi it's kind of really just mind-blowing really the ex- the extent not you know not saying that motorsport by itself has affected this entire change but that it can have a real contribution to that process and it's it's i think that's That was kind of really eye-opening for me and um it it gives you a new sort i suppose hope for what motorsport can possibly achieve and and yet it puts even more pressure on motorsport to get its own house in order a little bit if that makes sense
3: yeah for sure and i mean one of the one of the most astonishing things about the saudi races was that it was the first time that people were like oh there's only one woman and like and the princes would be jostling themselves to be like, don't say guys, say guys and girls, at least. And like, you know, they're talking in a second language so like, they're not... And I was just like, oh, I don't object to guys. It It was always, one of them would be like, and girls. And like, elbowing the other.
0: So they, they were trying to make that concerted effort to at least appear inclusive?
3: I think they genuinely were trying I mean, I, they were more scared of us than we were of them in the sense that Formula E was the first event where they had had people come in from outside the country we were certainly the showcase we were the first people who were given kind of like these special visas this was some of the first westerners who had been allowed in aside from people who were working for oil companies aside from people who were and like you have to understand the average Saudi is pretty poor so it's not Dubai, it's not, you know, the average Saudi is living on like a middle to low income and even for Saudi and like stuff is pretty cheap there, to be honest. The extent to which you could get out of the country if you were a, someone who was of means anyway. So like you're never going to stop the upper classes moving around. All you're going to do by in uh, putting all these boycotts in and putting all these barriers in is preventing anyone normal being able to do anything and having done my degree in international relations the overwhelming and we know this and we've known this for decades like i didn't do my degree recently (laughs) sanctions overwhelmingly affect ordinary people not the elites they don't affect the elites especially when the elites are incredibly rich And the West carried on buying Saudi oil. And the West carried on selling Saudi Arabia weapons and profiting from Saudi oil in that respect. So it's immensely complicated. And we have to talk about the human rights situation. We have to talk about the fact that there are lots and lots of people in prison. We have to talk about the cruelty of the state. We have to talk about the indecency of the state. We have to talk, you know, about all of those things. But from the West, we can do that. And also, you do have a slightly untouchable position as a Westerner going to Saudi and that what what they're going to do what arrest me for shaking hands with someone you have to be careful, obviously, and I am when I go and yes, it is complex, but there is a certain extent to which closeness has never improved the lives of people who are living under oppression that Simply disguises the oppression, especially if you are always trading with those company uh, countries. Um, you know, we've seen this with Russia, most recently, where where now when the West is cutting off supply lines of oil and gas. Yes, it is primarily ordinary people who are suffering. I don't think Putin's particularly feeling the effects of the supply chain crisis, but it's beginning to have an effect on industry. And when you have a com- a country that is so ruled by one industry with aramco and you continue to trade with aramco but go like, "Oh, that's very bad that you're oppressing your citizens, but you never look at look at it and you never speak to them and you never do anything about it then what does that really mean like and you never look at you know the life expectancy or or the the mental health and the the physical health problems that people were facing, because one of the one of the reasons that sport is such a priority of the Vision 2030, is because Saudis are dying very early because they're unhealthy, um, because because they weren't doing any sport, because sport was basically illegal, a lot of the time, um, because any <laughs> any group that was doing that kind of thing was basically illegal, and like. I think we have to have a healthy balance of looking at like how can we be effective in effecting change and how can we be effective in talking about Saudi Arabia and I I don't I like when the races were announced I was boilingly angry and I had a massive go at Alejandro Agag in a press conference and then he was like well women will be allowed to go and I was like oh, now I have to go. Um, even worse um, and then I went and I was like oh it's just a boring place where nothing happens and everyone's like on the brink of killing themselves because it's a boiling, boring place where nothing happens and like I can understand that, I grew up in Reddit. um <laughs> <laughs> um I um, wish it sorry, that's a very, very horrible like that's some rubbish joke.
2: Um uh but like, I did I did a, I did a week's course in Reading once I've got I've got family who live in Bracknell yeah, on, which
1: is um, I think it's the well, they regard it as the 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 uh, sort of more or the worse area in the uh that general Reading bracket. So
3: I mean, it's not shut <laughs> is it? So, you know, you you have to balance the idea of 39 million people whose average age is 31 with how much you hate their government. And, like, when I think about the Soviet government, like, of course, lots of reasons to hate them. At the same time, I think there was probably lots of reasons to hate lots of governments in the West, particularly, you know... The U.S. didn't lift apartheid until whenever, uh, until the 80s. And we have a very revisionist history of who is the good guys and who is the bad guys and who deserves their government and who doesn't deserve their government. And I think if you look at some people with an unelected government and you go, you deserve to be punished for that, that's probably a bit messed up. At the same time, there obviously has to be political influence exerted, but that could probably be exerted by saying, like, we're going to stop buying Aramco oil, which no one has ever suggested. Aston Martin
0: certainly didn't kick up Mm too much of a fuss when that sponsorship deal came knocking on the door.
3: I think now it's more important to talk about what is acceptable and what is tolerable In terms of, so for instance, what happened with the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix earlier this year, when there was the missile strike by the Houthis on a Aramco site near Jeddah. And it created this huge plume of smoke. It It was a complex missile strike. It was opportunistic. It was obviously designed to create attention and to create the idea that international events could be a target. Um, there'd been an alleged missile strike during a Formula E event previously. OSN is, so open source intelligence is sort of ambiguous about this. It appears that there was at least an intercepted missile strike over the desert somewhere near Diria. It certainly wasn't headed to the Formula E event. And I mean, I... At the time, there were lots of people who were like, it was hidden by the fireworks. I've been shelled. You don't mistake shelling for fireworks. Fireworks sound like fireworks. They can be loud. But shelling sounds like your head caving in. And even from a distance. And it comes with a, a big sort of rush of stuff. Especially in the desert where there's nothing to insulate the sound. So I personally think the missile was shot down a considerable way away from Riyadh, probably hundreds or or maybe a hundred miles away from Riyadh. There was possibly another strike that hit smaller that was a a drone led thing, but there was because people tend to think of missiles as cruise missiles and in this case they're not. They're actually very small ballistic missiles. If you hit an oil refinery with one, it will go up because it's an oil refinery. But if you hit an oil refinery with a car bomb, then it will go up because it's an oil refinery. And then, like, I personally felt that the original Formula E1 one was one where the Saudi Arabian state was trying to make itself look under much more fire from the Houthi than it was. I'm still not 100% convinced that the Formula One one wasn't. I suspect they probably could have intervened but it's in their interests to appear under fire from the Houthi so that they can justify retaliation and justify the extremely brutal war in Yemen so whenever anything happens within that sphere there's it's very complex it's very complex politically and morally and it's often very, very difficult until maybe after the fact to work out exactly what happened. Because once you've got the satellite imagery and you've got exactly what you can put together. I spoke to a very good OSINT person about from Aurora Intel about the Jeddah one. And he said, you know, it's, it's, it's always important to recognize that the initial messages Are likely to be at best ambiguously political and at worst extremely political. So if it's people saying the Houthis have us under like huge missile bombardment, well, no, they don't. The Houthis are using, you know, stuff they get from Iran. There is an active war, and the question of should Formula One go to an active war zone is an interesting one. I think it's a more interesting one if you consider, say, Silverstone in the 90s, when the UK was an active war zone, or the last few years of Kailami, when South Africa was an active war zone, was also, you know, an extremely morally reprehensible state. Or, I would say Sochi, which was always a, a very politically positioned place. It's 16 miles north of a border between what could be Georgia is an annexed region there's there's a fairly active conflict that goes on and off around Abkhazia and it's very close to Chechnya which is another sort of like semi-active conflict region Dagestan which is another the actually quite active conflict region and I think sometimes we just don't understand where we're going. You know I'm stunned that the Olympic Committee signed off Sochi because it's it's a war zone <laughs> and it's on a, a genocide site and, and like it, it, you know there's all these things so I think generally It's too generalist to say and I don't want to be like everything's fine because everything's problematic because that is absolutely not my point but I think that we have to always be careful to listen to the people who are from places so I don't think I'm, I'm an interesting person to talk to about Saudi Arabia, I think Saudi Arabians are, are the interesting people to talk to about Saudi Arabia but I do think that we have to be a little bit more cynical about everywhere. So we have to be more cynical about Miami. We have to be more cynical about, uh, you know, Vegas. So Miami, Miami, at the same time as the F1 Grand Prix was going there and having like a fabulous time with lots of VIPs. There was horrible, horrible anti-LGBTQ plus laws proposed to be put in place they didn't end up put in place but my god it was even close and like we need to think more about who is the good guys just because we know them or like who we automatically allow a pass because of whatever and I don't think it's wrong that we apply scrutiny to the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. I don't think it's wrong that we uh, apply scrutiny to, you know, any Grand Prix, but we have to apply the scrutiny to all of them because it's right. Like, and I also don't think, should, yeah, it's like there's military fly paths that we do at Western Grand Prix where I'm like, well, I don't think we should do that either. You know, um, Sorry, I will shut up because I've been talking for ages. I'm probably rambling.
0: No, I think it's all very interesting that, uh, I don't want to say that idea, but the complex nature of what happens when an event is held somewhere. The interesting thing, and a question to ask you really, is the response to those actions.
3: I think there's two things, and there's, there's an obvious like line occurring here, which is that F1 had been declining in popularity And it had this ageing, squidgening, that's such a terrible word, but like its demographic was squashing down into a small number of people who were willing to put up with it and who were not only willing to put up with it, but were willing to pay for it behind a paywall and like all of the other factors that are barriers to getting into F1. That was a huge problem for Formula One. Like, huge, huge, huge problem. It was on the brink of just keeling over because Formula One needs a big audience because that's how you get big sponsors, which is how you get the money that is how you pay for Formula One. The thing that has overwhelmingly saved it... So Bernie didn't sell it because he thought there was any money left to ring out of it. He sold it because he'd run out of ideas. And he thought he was selling Liberty Media a duck that he he just you know finally got away with the big heist and then they managed to turn around by being like what if we actually posted on social media and like looked at Formula E which at the time Formula E was the only real like motorsport championship doing for uh, social media and was doing a freaking amazing job Since then, it's gone absolutely down the toilet with regards to uh, social media. But it was originally doing a really, really, really good job and forced all its teams to do a really good job by introducing FanBoost. Like, that was the purpose of FanBoost. It was to force the teams to get on social media and force their PR departments to do digital stuff. And then Liberty Media took over. Formula One actually woke up to the idea of a digital world so it realised that there were all these YouTubers that were getting hundreds of thousands of views of the Formula One game, which is where Formula One esports is from. Because they were like, oh, that's loads of places where everyone was seeing all our sponsors off our game in H- uh, HD, but we had nothing to do with it. And it was footage that they could use because all of the broadcast rights are so tied up that they can use like so little of anything. And then it started doing things like Drive to Survive, where it was like, well, what can we broadcast? Well, this. We we can go and, tie and try and tie up something. And then lockdown obviously sent Drive to Survive into a massive spiral. Because everyone was like, what's this rubbish? Never heard of this. Oh, it's drama, is it? All right, I'll watch it. Because we'd all run out of YouTube twice by this point. Now you've got this huge groundswell of popularity, which is great, but also Formula One is subsequently under pressure to behave as though it exists in the 21st century, which it hadn't ever really previously been in, because the pressure for it to do anything that didn't suck had largely come from its demographics that it didn't consider its paying demographics. So previously it's... Sponsored sponsors have been like Rolex and like other things that were marketed at 50 plus executives. Whereas now it's like Zoom. Well, we all use Zoom. Amazon Web Services. Well, we all use Amazon Web Services whether we like it or not. The size of sponsor and the, the difference in like the demographic of sponsor has completely changed. And that's very good for Formula One. It's it's incredibly important for the survival of the sport. But it does also come with a different set of demands because Amazon Web Service can't sit there and be like, well, no one could come out because the sponsors would leave. Amazon Web Service isn't going to leave if someone comes out. Can you imagine the crisis? (laughs) And, like, Coca-Cola isn't going to leave if someone comes out like this is all rubbish and I think there's yeah there's a tension between the people who had maintained this idea because they were like well the only money that you're ever going to get is from this and that's not the case anymore and people have to live with that that's really fascinating that idea
0: that (laughs) The sponsors, that are, the idea, the fact that the sponsors that are there now are are there for the totality and the, what could have caused mass eruptions and, to be fair, it would probably be a storm in, the, in a teacup when they do happen, it? it's a matter of time, that you think those sponsors are just going to stick around. And likely more sponsors will come in once, once those decisions are made.
3: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, all of the evidences the more diverse you make your sport. So, for instance, like Formula One previously had a problem with attracting demographics because it was so... or advertisers because it was so male, it was so over 50s. You can see it if you subscribe to Sky Sports F1 in the UK. Every advert is like, can you get it up? And are you losing your hair? And I'm like not really anything that's bothered me recently um uh like store-bought is fine and no it's it's it it seems to be standing up to the bleach so far it's very obvious who sky sports have sold packages to for multiple years uh because i can't believe that the same demographic is actually the people who is, is is actually watching sky sports right now they're probably now able to go like, we've got a 33% under 30, which is like the absolute dream for advertisers. Like if you can get under 30s, you're like living some kind of like deluded lifestyle. And if Formula One can look at their social media and be like, well, half of our audience is women and like whatever, then again, you're you're looking at totally different, a demographic of advertisers because like for instance coca-cola don't care about only advertising to men but they do advertise a lot <laughs> or banks or like whatever there's all kinds of things where you'll hit it and you'll hit like a bigger sponsor you'll hit much bigger money by having a more diverse audience and an international audience and, like, an ethnically diverse audience. So you're hitting the LGBTQ things and then the corporate social responsibility department can be like, oh, we were emphasising. It's a very different proposition. When you're talking about millions and millions of pounds, all of these things make a massive difference.
0: And I think it's interesting as well, especially this season, how they've been working... Sky F1 this is say Rachel Brooks into the, the commentary box during the practices Naomi Schiff being there as well so it's not just very let's be fair very old white racing drivers <laughs> we all grew up with doing those bits and I think it's still not the best coverage but I think they're they're bringing something better to it and hopefully, hopefully that continues
3: I love it is so good she's amazing uh, Naomi Schiff when she's trackside. So I always I always used to cringe when it was like a bit of Martin Brundle trackside and he was like, You can feel the speed and I was like, Well we can't. We're not standing next to you, Martin. But Naomi will be like as you watch them go through the corner you can see that the way that the front wing bends is different on these cars and these cars and these ones are more planted and these ones are less planted. And I'm like that is brilliant! That is exactly what you want! <laughs> like, for a new Formula One fan, for an old Formula One fan, that is exactly what you want. I'm the first person to say, like, I'm quite good at... Well, no. Sorry, I shouldn't be... Shouldn't talk myself that. I'm very good at the technical stuff, but I'm not an aerodynamicist. And even though I did a postgraduate aerodynamics qualification, I can't really tell you in the same way that Scarves Tech or or like some of the other really good aerodynamic technical people can look at a Front Wing and be like, oh, that's more or less downforce. I I mean, I can probably say more or less downforce, but I can't say why or, or like particularly how much. But like that kind of information of like how to watch it and what to look for, that's so useful. Like, that's so helpful in such a technical sport. That's so helpful.
2: It's like a light bulb moment when you, you see things like that. And I think in some respects, it's it feels like the sport's just, it hasn't really moved on very much and a lot of that information that you get from social media now in in little snippets like that is and the traditional broadcasters haven't have been a bit slow to pick up on that kind of thing and it's it's really interesting that it, it's this sort of change in demographic and the, the pressures that have been put on the broadcasters through the way things have been changing that have maybe driven that a little bit and, and they're sort of actually finally moving on from like the long 1990s which is sort of where I feel like we've been for for most of my time I've been following it.
3: it. It's like millennials are a long generation and we've had a long 1990s. Mm,
2: yeah.
0: I think that's where Formula E have done really well in explaining the technology because the sports as much... Ooh, about... Okay. Guess... Okay, here we go. Now we're getting on to you know, the, fun, the fun bit of the podcast. I've always thought... Let's rephrase this question. They've done very well in explaining the tech. Hazel, tell me why I'm wrong.
3: So I think that Formula E actually does do a good job in the sense that in the rundown to every race, it does a bit about this is how the cars work. They have regen. They have whatever. The things that I think Formula E has done very badly on is explaining exactly what it has done in terms of progressing electric vehicle technology. So, with Formula One, they're like, these are the most advanced cars in the world. With Formula E, they can't say these are the most advanced electric vehicles in the world. They're not. It's true. Partly because they're generational, partly because they're power limited, partly because they're battery limited. But they are the most raceable electric vehicles in the world. And the thing that is really important about Formula E is that, like, the big miracle of Formula E, and I wish they would let me do a video about this, is uh, regen. Um, So regen in electric vehicles has been set at pretty much the same as it always has since the very first Prius was introduced, which is 70 to 90 kilowatts. Almost every electric vehicle, including the high-end Teslas, has which you know Teslas don't have particularly advanced technology in them. They have shocking batteries, and the the, almost everything about what they run on is very basic.
0: Thank thank Uh, you, Hazel. I've always wanted to talk to Teslas.
3: Well, I'm, I'm, uh, well, the exciting thing is they don't have a PR department, so they probably won't notice. And also, I'm quite happy to take that on myself. So um, please, please don't see the podcast. However, the high-end Teslas now coming out are only just pushing one hundred kilowatt, uh, 110 kilowatts of regen, which is very, very low generally everyone has been nervous about using large amounts of regen even though it's a great way to prevent brake deterioration even though it's a great way to deal with the weight of electric vehicles and brake uh, deterioration as a consequence even though it's a like just huge range, uh, range extender it's been something everyone's so nervous about that they won't do because they're like what if we cook the battery with regen Because it's power flowing back into the battery and the battery's, you know, charging, discharging, and it does get it hotter and and less hot. Formula E, by using these spec-limited batteries, so you can't have a special liquid-cooled battery. You've got to deal with the battery you're given. Forces car manufacturers to think clever about how they're dealing with stuff. So the the Mercedes EQS has two hundred and ninety five kilowatts of regen and I wrote to them like three times I was like just to check that is actually regen. That's not I don't know, yeah like it looks you've written that as the regen figure? Are you sure? Because it was so much higher than any other production car. And they was like Yeah, that's that's the regen. And I was like, okay, well, that's more than the current Formula E. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's because we learned how to do it in Formula E. (laughs) But we've got a way cooler battery than the Formula E battery because the Formula E battery is three years old. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, So, like, Formula E, by forcing them to use, like, basically, it's not a crappy battery. It's just they can't pick like whatever high-end battery they want to throw out every now and then, forces them to be clever and to learn how to use regen and to manage temperatures and to be smart. And you see massive real-world gains. So, like, Jaguar have put 13.2 miles on the i through the i racing. And then they've also put a 10% increase on their plug-in hybrid vehicles by getting them to drive like the way that a Formula E driver drives so getting them to lift before a corner the way that a Formula E driver would and like i'm like this is what it needs to do this is the clever stuff the pushing the end of it stuff because like motors are fairly basic batteries are limited at the moment because we only have lithium ion technology that's kind of usable and and that will change but but this is where we are now. That's where it needs to be good.
2: <laughs> is the Gen three car but sort of moving some of this up a little bit or
3: Yes, for sure. So six hundred kilowatts of regen.
0: Okay. The follow up question to that is
3: yeah.
0: two of them have crashed rather spectacularly recently. Yeah. How is that going to be impacting the development? Because I was quite surprised that there is literally no redundancy in the code at the moment for when the battery skipped up that was saying on the race. So,
3: I mean, the the code is written by the manufacturers. So at the end of the day, that's, that's where it's at. The first spectacular crash was during chassis testing. It was Teo Porcher. He won't speak about it. He won't even confirm he's tested the chassis. So it, it is what it is. I interviewed Teo relatively regularly because I do Genius Series stuff, but um, yeah, he won't talk about it. It looks like a really spectacular crash. To be honest, I think it just went a bit sideways. Um, uh, The car has no rear mechanical brakes, so it's all regen braking at the back. That sounds really dramatic. Like, that sounds really like... (gasps) But the car's never had any mechanical brakes at the back, to be honest. One of the reasons that the first corner of Formula E is always so messy is because they can't brake with regen below 95% battery, or above 90% at 95% battery. And so they have no brakes into the first corner because like Formula One cars, Formula E cars brake 80% to more than that, more like 90% with regen. So it is, it is what it is. The car seems to be very squirrely. It's very light. It's got a small battery. It's got this massively high regen, which when it breaks, yes, it's unpredictable. We saw a lot of this with the first generation and the second generation. I'm not particularly concerned. The thing that's more concerning is that there is a, a current massive shortage of chassis. So the Teo chair crash, that's chassis testing, that's that's whatever. That's the crash. But now we're into manufacturer testing. The Ollie Roland crash means that they have no chassis to test right now. Because there isn't another chassis for Spark to give them. That's a problem. Like, we're going... Communal testing, oh, well, I say we, they are going communal testing in October, so that's. We're cutting really fine. Like, the powertrain has to be homologated by October. You're talking very, very, very fine margins now. Yeah. I mean, it, it was tight when no one had seen a chassis until April. When I was in Monaco at the launch, it was swarmed by mechanics that were literally measure, measuring it. Like they had their temperatures out.
1: So is there an element here similar to Formula One, where there's is it that there's that many changes? is it is it so different that they're struggling to to make it available in time, or are there other reasons behind why?
3: So my day job now is in in supply chain and logistics, or covering supply chain and logistics. And like the overwhelming problem is that there is a massive issue with supply chain and logistics across everything. And you know, Formula E teams do not have factory fashioning departments in the same way that Formula One teams do, but also they are reliant on Spark to deliver a chassis. They They don't have an option. They can't make their own chassis, even if they were given the spec. So there is a roadblock here. We've known for three years there aren't enough parts, but there was a sort of acceptance. This was part of... So 2020, 2021, 2022, there were not enough parts, but this was sort of given as an acceptance as, like, Gen 3 will happen. Gen three was signed off very late. Don't have the format, don't have the chassis. Like it's getting, I'm sure it will happen. So Gen one happened in a huge mess with, in a few months with lots of drama and no one really knew what was going on. That was Gen one. That was like the silly car that you had to switch between. This should not be happening with Gen 3. Even global issues notwithstanding, this should not be happening.
0: It's interesting because it, it made me be just me missing it. but I haven't seen more concerns over the ones you've just raised, which you would think would be huge. The season is that far away. For Do you think we're going to get another year of Gen 2 just because they can't be Gen 3? Really?
3: Uh, it will go to Gen 3. The simplification has already happened which was that it was intended to have both axles drive. And now it only has front axle regen. That's really sad that's happened, but it does mean, so the, the MGU in the front axle could go both ways. So hopefully at some phase during gen three, we'll get gen 3.5 and that, that will happen. This
0: has been a fascinating discussion and we can't thank you enough, Hazel, for your time and, putting up with our general stupidity but we have to get to the general stupidity because let's face it that's what everybody's been listening for fernando we love general
3: stupidity
0: yeah so the thing is i've been thinking this year has been a little bit dull the summer break was just gonna be an excuse to wind down and relax and you know all the basic stuff what's your take on this thing because we're having endless fun trying to figure that out
3: i mean in terms of figuring it out if Piastri is going to McLaren, then... I think something that's important to think about about the uh, McLaren-Ricardo partnership is that they wanted Ricardo more than anything. They wanted Ricardo so bad they were willing to let go Carlos Sainz, who had been a really good driver for them, and they let him go. They let him go under contract to Ferrari. And they just said, like, you know what, you go and drive that red tractor. Um, obviously, it turned out that that perhaps Ferrari had not completely clowned on themselves. <laughs> well, <laughs> in different ways. Um, uh, but Ferrari, yeah, took science, and they were crowingly excited to get Ricardo. So I do not believe for any second. That they taking Ricardo an enormous price, were sad to get Ricardo, or that they were disappointed to get Ricardo, or that they were um, willing to screw him over in some way. Also, remember they are in a points fight with Alpine, and they desperately want him to score points. I do believe that McLaren are a midfield team who is barely in the position of scoring points. And I think that Daniel has, to be honest, shown where McLaren truly are. Not particularly that he's a bad driver, just that he hasn't been able to outdrive the car in the same way that, that Lando has. Because they weren't ready for a top team driver in the same way that they weren't ready for the lead in Sochi. They showed that they didn't know actually how to lead a race when they were challenged for the lead of a race. And they thought that Daniel would teach them how to do that. He wasn't able to get to the front enough to do that. I think there was a bit of hubris on McLaren's side, that they thought that they were going to go back to being a race-winning team and that they thought that this would be a way to do it. I, I think that ultimately, because, and I don't think either side is faking it, they just don't understand why they can't work together. And, like, that sounds unbelievable between the analytics of all of an F1 team. But I think it comes down to the fact that McLaren is where it is. And, like, if you think about, you know, McLaren with Jens Button and Fernando Alonso couldn't work out what was wrong with it, um, which God knows it was a lot. And it certainly wasn't just Honda. There's a lot to be said for they just weren't ready for a top team driver.
2: So, has Piastri made a, actually made a horrible, horrible mistake?
3: No, not necessarily. I mean, he's he's a Formula Two driver. He's been sitting on the sidelines mm. for
2: a year. Yeah, this is true. It feels to me like there's a part of the the reasoning in this, insofar as it can be made out, is that Mark Webber and Piastri himself think that um, McLaren is a is a much sounder bet, you know, in the immediate and in the long term than, than Alpine. And I'm not 100 percent sure that that's correct given that's McLaren's problems for for many many years but uh, having said that it's, it feels like both both McLaren and Alpine are, are teams that that keep sort of kind of hitting this wall in the the sort of upper midfield and then not being able to to get by it and they keep thinking that they're going to be able to sort of you know make it into the top three and obviously Alpine's kind of doing it on not really the proper kind of budget for a top team but
3: I think the error that was made was that Alpine said that they were negotiating with Fernando Alonso.
2: Mm. Yeah.
3: At which point you say, well, how many years am I going to sit here making tea?
2: Fair point. Very fair point.
3: So, of course you go and And, like, Mark Webber is not a particularly good manager, to be honest. He didn't, he didn't manage Mitch Evans very well. He's already failed to get one into Formula 1. And Mitch is now in a great place. He's he's now, you know, the god of Jaguar. He's the Lando of Jaguar. And he's eaten every teammate apart from Sam Bird. And they had to get a Sam Bird in to get a teammate that he didn't just utterly destroy. Um, and not because he's horrible. And I don't, again, I don't think it's because Lando is horrible. I think it's just because they're so embedded in the team. That, like, the team understands them on a level... And they're out driving the car.
1: So, do you think that um, that's very much the case then at McLaren that Ricardo is getting the best that he can out of that car and that Lando is out driving it? Because there's been some suggestions that that Danny's struggling to get a handle on the car.
3: I don't think he understands the car and I don't think, um, and I think, like, you know, Lando doesn't like it either.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's, tough. it's always going to be tough for a driver, isn't it, regardless of the reasons behind it. If you're in a team with someone that's less experienced than you, uh, who is consistently outperforming you on the track, it's going to create some sort of perception, isn't it, to, to outsiders, those looking in.
3: And I understand why Daniel Ricciardo fans are keen to sort of subscribe to some sort of conspiracy theory that they're sabotaging Daniel, but it would make no sense for either Lando or McLaren to sabotage Daniel because they are desperate for the money from the points. They do have some heritage payment, but it's nothing like, for instance, Williams or Ferraris. And they don't get... Like, McLaren nearly went bankrupt over lockdown. Like, we have to remember that, like, they came really, really close to the end, and they had to hock MTC to landlords and buy it and rent it back from them. So, like McLaren have pretty much hit Williams' to, uh, stakes financially, and they just about managed to claw onto it. And if they're looking at a driver that they're, they're paying an alleged twenty-five million. To a driver who they were paying a fraction of that, and he's outperforming him, then I thought they were quite kind to not being off Daniel last year, like in business terms, and one of my friends made a tweet where it was like if you out if you underperform in a normal sport for two years, you would be considered to be out. If you underperform in some other sports, but you're a funny person, then that's an injustice. <laughs> I, I think the failure goes first, both ways. Like Daniel has obviously failed to gel with McLaren, but I think McLaren have failed to gel with him. And I think McLaren have, like I said, with Alonso and with Button and with like previous drivers, they've failed to be able to take on board stuff. We know that Stoffel is very good. We know that Stoffel is extraordinarily good. And he was hampered by, admittedly, the Alonso problem. And and also by the mass amount of beef that was going on with McLaren-Honda by that point. And because he was seen as more Honda. Because Honda considered him one of Honda for various reasons. But this is a team that failed Fernando Alonso. So Andreas and Lando will say it in interviews, they don't have the infrastructure around them to operate like a top team. They don't have the data centers. They don't have, like, everything that they need to operate like a top team in the, in the current era. And some of that is that they had to cut costs and, and, and slice down things. And in a way, they never recovered from that, like, the Spygate times. It's sort of been a downhill and uphill trajectory from then. I, I think they thought they were ready for a top team driver. They probably weren't. And one of the things that Sainz probably had that was very helpful was because he came from a team with no resources in Toro Rosso. So he knew how to be like, well, this car is undrivable and it's horrible. Yeah. and like, So you've got to change this specific bit. Whereas we know one of the things about Ricardo and this is, this isn't me slating Ricardo it's just that he's a different type of driver because he had spent a lot of time in the top team and then in a factory team, which has different resources where you could go like, "Well I don't really like this feeling," and someone would go like, oh, let's go away and analyze that for 60 60- and and there would be a different kind of response to it, and I, I think yeah, they just weren't ready for someone who who was in that position.
1: I feel like as well, there was an element of you know, particularly with with Lando performing at the levels he has done with the car he's got, that if if Danny was to go into the pits and say this is working or I don't feel like this is working, that McLaren's response is yeah, but Lando, you know, it's it's easy for them just to go yeah, well you know the guy next door to you is is making it work so why can't you
3: well I don't think they care about that so in Formula E it's very different so the equivalent of aero updates for Formula E is programming and you have to set that for both cars and it's set for a weekend that's it gone you set it seven days before the weekend done
1: so car settings have to be identical Yep. across both cars
3: Yep. Okay. Yeah, 100%. And you can fiddle a bit with like the height of the front wing, but that's yeah, and the... There's this little, little tiny bit of adjustments that you can make, but that's pretty much it. You have to live with it. Formula 1, you can make whatever... You can run two very different cars if you want. So if Daniel said, hey, what Lando likes, I don't like, they could be like, well, we'll turn it the other way. It's not a case of that particularly I'm not in any way trying to say that it's not been difficult for Daniel it clearly has and he's clearly been like through a freaking ringer but I don't think that McLaren brought him there to throw him through a ringer I think they wanted to make this work and for McLaren and, and Daniel it just hasn't and I don't think either of them can explain why and that's weird. What's
1: Danny's future then? I mean, do you, is is it the obvious one? Do you go to, where, to the only open seat that's currently available and says, yeah, I'll have that? Or does he think about maybe moving on to something else?
3: I think Alpine have said they'll take him back, which that had seemed like a burned bridge, but since Cyril has moved on and is no longer climbing the walls grieving Daniel who left him truly, truly the greatest performance of like just God, I will never get since Daniel left me Uh, the team maybe that's a good option it's certainly going to be the well paid option so uh, if he wants a a last few goes in Formula 1 then for sure if he doesn't and especially if McLaren hold him to his contract, then he has an opportunity to pay be paid Formula One money for one year only <laughs> in Formula E, because there's this is the final year of the twelve million euro budget cap for Formula E, teams, which twelve million euro. You've got Formula One teams going like, we can't operate on $140 million. But 12, uh, 12 million euro budget cap excluding driver salaries. So he could go for one last round and then screw off to, I don't know, super cars or whatever.
0: Right, let's wrap this up. A couple quick fire uh-huh. questions for you, Hazel. Have Ferrari properly screwed this up and we can discount them for the rest of the year
3: (laughs) yes and no (laughs) Um, so yes they have properly screwed this up and I don't think there's any coming back from this but do I think that they will comedically come back at the end of the season and win a whole bunch of races in a row with a one-two in a destructive manner That, like, if only they could have found this form. Um, uh, Whilst uh, Red Bull have exploding engines, Mercedes finally reached the end of their reliability. I don't know. Yeah, i I think, I think we could see the too late to come back.
0: Will Mercedes win a race this year? Probably. With which car?
3: I think it is a complete toss-up. I think Mercedes will win a, a race on chance in the way that McLaren did last year. So, yeah, it's whichever one is ahead.
0: They've been very good at picking up pieces yeah. this year. And let's think of one God. last random one. Um it should be a Formula E question. It is, and that's what I'm going to go for, because I, I'm, lo- I'm looking at our oh, notes.
3: Can bad anyone stop scuffle?
0: I, I was trying not to ask that question because I don't think anyone can. And if I say anyone else, my daughter will appear and just punch me. She's a big Stoffel fan. Okay, let's ask it. Can anyone stop Stoffel?
3: Yeah, and mathematically people can still stop Stoffel and it's Formula Eight, So he could turn up in Seoul and his card doesn't work. So, yeah. I personally think it's Stoffel's year and it's a very earned championship. Stoffel is a hugely underrated driver. I unfortunately think it's going to fly under the radar and kind of mean nothing, which is really unfortunate for Stoffel and also for the end of Gen 2, but Stoffel's been there since the start of Gen 2. He dragged that grotesque HWA to a podium in his first year anyone who watched him in GPT knows how good he is and to be honest anyone who watched him in Formula One knows how good he is Formula E's been up and down for him because Formula E is up and down for everyone but the problem with Formula E is there are so many people where you're like flipping love to see him win a championship and like I don't I don't know if I feel the same about Formula One where and and maybe it's just the the field's so uneven in Formula One whereas the field's much more close in Formula E and you genuinely can get about eight people who are in machinery worthy of and could have fought for a championship were it not for, you know, like clobbering in like one or and and I think Stoffel was very unlucky to not be the first Mercedes champion. And I think although it's boring if Mercedes win again. I'm happy if it's not That That's it. I freaking love it if Mitch somehow clobbered it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not a Formula E fan, please have a look at it, because it is controlled chaos of the highest wonderful order. It's fantastic watching. And I suppose, to wrap up, are you
3: missing it? Me? Hmm. I I left at Berlin and I missed two races, which is the longest gap I've not been to a race since 2017. I went back in London because I live in London, so it seemed silly, especially because my housemate was accredited and I was like, you know what thing that's kind of annoying me more than going back to Formula E is? You going to Formula E and saying you've seen all my friends, <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I I miss it desperately. I wish I could go back. I wish there was a financially viable way to cover it. Yeah.
0: That's a little bit more of a downer than I was Sorry.
3: I
2: was <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, so this has been absolutely fascinating. I was so excited for this. And it's delivered on every level. So thank you so much for slumming I feel it like an absolute rubbish for how
3: it's so, like, <laughs> I apologise for burbling on.
2: It's, it's good when the guest In talks. It. It's just, yeah, been really good. Thank you very much.
0: We cannot thank Hazel Southwell enough for being our first guest on the podcast. And we can't thank you enough for sticking with us as we get through our first episode and technical Hitches along the way. They won't be there in future, I promise. Please do follow Hazel. She is amazing, as you've heard. She's on Twitter at H Southwall FE. We got a link to her account down in the description below. Give us a follow on the main feed, which is at Boney Abroad Pods, where you can find out all the latest for our podcasts. And of course, there is a Patreon page. Starting from just three pounds a month, you can join all the fun matt's going to be writing some historical racing articles we've got discord server going as well which is basically our group chat that you can join into as well and even ask questions for our upcoming guests and we hope you'll join us for that head to patreon.com forward slash of disaster for all the details find out about the merch and we cannot wait to see you again with more wonderful guests and some really exciting twists and turns along the way so until then thanks a lot take care